Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. I'm joined today by two incredible guests. I'm joined by Ben Litauer of Jericho Circle and Raul Espinosa of All Kings. And these are the two organizations that I will be raising awareness for in this episode, Jericho Circle and All Kings. They're each linked in the show notes. And after this conversation, I'm highly confident that you are going to want to donate. So please join me in donating. This conversation feels personally important to me because I really care about equity and justice. And in a lot of ways, our prison system represents all of the things that are really gnarly about our society. A lot of folks who are in prison have been deeply traumatized, come from low income households with absent parents. And when folks go to jail, it's not restorative and healing. It just deepens the wounds that have already been there. It deepens the trauma. And what Ben and Raul are doing with each of these organizations is bringing really powerful transformational healing work into prisons so that when men get reintegrated into society, when they leave jail and come back into society, they're more resourced to be who they are and move more effectively through their life. I think this applies to every single person. So this is actually something we speak about in the conversation, how a lot of us are stuck in our own old patterns and, and the prison of our mind. So the basic tools of emotional literacy and understanding what we are feeling, understanding what matters to us, what we believe, all of these things are transformational to any single person. And I believe our path forward as a society is dependent on a lot of these tools. Like I really believe that if every single person was equipped with strong emotional intelligence, awareness, was operating consciously and moving through life through choice and not through reaction and fear, it would eliminate so much of the drama and challenges that we face as a society. As soon as you hear Ben and Raul talk, you're going to feel a level of ease in your nervous system because they are just such safe spaces. We start this conversation with the power of a check-in, like just saying what's really happening in our inner world already brings a lot of ease and uh, more availability to life. Ben and Raul also talk about what this work looks like in a really practical way in terms of what, is, what does it look like when we go into prisons and teach men these tools and what's possible on the other side of that. I'm really passionate about this conversation. I might even say this is one of the most important that I've had on this platform. And I really hope that you consider donating to each of these organizations because they're making such a powerful impact. The last thing I'll say before handing it over to Ben and Raul is we mentioned a documentary called The Work, and it's about an hour and a half deep dive into a lot of the things that we're talking about. So if you want to explore more deeply what this work looks like, on camera in real prison, in Folsom prison, then I highly recommend checking out the documentary, the work, and I will link to that in the show notes as well. So with all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath, 
And enjoy this conversation with Ben Litauer and Raul Espinoza. All right, Ben and Raul, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning. And I I wanted to start this conversation in a way that is really aligned with the work that you're doing. And I've I've heard each of you speak to the power of a check-in. I know how powerful a check-in is and how just being real with another person, and in this case, another man, it just allows us to feel more fully arrived in the moment. And I've had that experience countless times. So I would just love to hear like, what's, what's really up with each of you right now. If you were in a men's circle, what would you be checking in with right now? Then you want to kick us off? You want yeah, I'll, I'll kick it off. Sure. Um, right. I think there's some joy. I'm glad to be doing that with you guys right now. You know, I really value men's circles and the opportunity to get together and kind of like be real about stuff. Under that, there's actually some sadness that's up right now. I'm sort of really exploring in my life my the armor I wear, I would say, like over my heart that kind of keeps me from being more emotionally available and intimate, especially with men, but just with women also. Like I really, there's a level to which I will open. And then beyond that, there's a place where it gets really tender. And I just, I have a hard time kind of going there. So I'm sort of playing with that. Like we were talking before this call about some stuff. And then I just kind of felt like Raul stepped away for a moment and you were there, Michael, and there was this immediate instinct that arose in me to like, rather than talk to you more deeply, was to like, I should go like check an email or do, you know, it's like, and I really, I caught myself. I'm just like, oh, there's that, that's this place that I go where the moment I kind of drop in or something gets a little more vulnerable, I need to go like peace out somewhere to avoid feeling that. So I, there was some sadness that came up for me around that. So I'm, I'm feeling that. And, you know, kind of like I was sharing with you guys earlier, I have some residual like anger and with it shame that I'm carrying and I feel it mostly in my stomach right now I'm really and I just I just had a, a call with somebody earlier today a personal relationship where I'm setting a boundary with this individual and it really hooks me in some like I think shame that I carry around if somebody needs help it's on me to help them and I'm a bad person if I don't I'm the oldest of five kids in my family I grew up in a very religious home where there was a lot of like, you know, to whom much has been given, much will be required, you know, and, and you know, if somebody needs help, you're basically supposed to do something. And if you don't, you know, you're being selfish. So I took that on that I, I if I put my needs ahead of somebody else's, that, you know, there's something really wrong with me. So, so there's this, this shame because I'm saying no to this person. And there's also like a very deep anger, I think, which is defending my the validity of my own needs, my, my freedom, my autonomy as a person, as a man, like I, you know, and that's a long journey I've been on, but I, I think like kind of this past week, I hit a place of just really feeling kind of burned out with some stuff, um, you know, including with some of the men's work that we're going to be talking about and realizing like, if I go down this path, I'm going to flame out and like, just be like, I'm going to just collapse somehow. I don't want to live that way, you know? So I'm, I'm, I'm choosing to, scale back the demands I'm putting on myself. I canceled the trip I was going to go on next week that I want, you know, in a perfect world would like to do, but it feels unwieldy, you know, with my calendar, I'm going to be, it'll be stressful for me to do it. And I'm putting some more stuff on the calendar. That's like fun for me to do that. I'm going to feel fed by, you know, and there's just this very deep, like my anger is the, the sort of like the very righteous emotion that I have. that lets me know when my boundaries are being crossed. So I'm kind of following that and using channeling that to kind of say like, hey, 
we just like we were saying before we got on here, like the question, like, what about me? What about me? And like from that place, when I take care of myself, I think I like to help people from a more genuine kind of heartfelt place versus one of resentment or an, ob- an obligation. So like, I like obligation is a big theme for me. So yeah. So, 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 so the sadness, the anger, and then also the joy, that's kind of what's up for me and some nervousness, you know, this is recorded. It'll be published. I don't know how people will react to it. You know, so I'm, I'm, I'm in with that as we like to say. So thank you. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Raul, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. What's going on, everyone? My name is Raul. I'm checking in from Brooklyn, New York right now. You might hear some sirens in the background because I hear them in a distance. They're going in and out. First of all, I just want to check in with gratitude. Ben, every time I've checked in with you, I've felt this deep permission that you have with yourself to really explore what's going on in there. And it allows me to slow down. I operate a lot from my mind and you know, in in regards to archetypes for my warrior, which is get things done. So often I want to like, let's get this out of the way so we could get to business. And so I disregard so many different parts of me. And it's something that I've learned. You know, I've learned that a lot of how I feel is dictated by what the judgments I have about what I do. And so I want to get to doing. I want to get productive because when I'm not productive, not feeling great and i've tied for so long i've tied my value into what i produce so if i'm not creating something of value it must not be valuable and though i've grown so much from that space to really give myself permission to be where i'm at i also fall back to old patterns when in the moments especially when i'm either in an emotion of shame or fear or sadness where there's that's like the fuel and passion to like drive to to do something or there's an excitement the same charge the same charge of excitement i have an urgency to move past what i'm feeling and i'm talking in circles right now about what i'm what i'm around what i'm thinking about how i'm feeling how i'm feeling is i'm feeling a lot of joy i'm feeling a lot of joy for just the progress we've been making with all kings some of the meetings that we've been having got to meet with the brooklyn da Got to speak at a couple of the largest reentry organizations in New York. And with that, there's there's excitement of the progress, but I also have a lot of fear because this work is dependent on me showing up to the and taking a seat around that fire, taking a seat in, in that circle and doing the work. And I can't do it alone. And I often find there's people that want change but they're not willing to change and that's that's our own my own independent journey so there's fear about this push and drive about what we're creating and at the same time can i deliver with these promises and this be what i imagine it to be and what i know it is but to take it to the scale where we're shifting communities have tall ambitions and and putting this work out there into the world and so with that i just get to bleed it I get so much of me, I, I, 10 times of me is giving and not as much as putting back in. And that's my, the parts where I get out of integrity with myself. And then I just go mile a minute in my head. The thoughts go firing off rapid fire with this and judgment and well, if you did this and if you stop thinking and, you know, all that stuff, all the, all the things that occur up there. So I'm grateful that I have moments where I could pause 
especially with brothers, because that was so rare for me. Uh, I have a million examples of what not to be as a man and very few examples of what to be. So mm-hmm. to have a moment to pause and sink in and be like, what am I actually feeling right now? Be okay with that. Take up some space with what's occurring for me. And for that to be all right, it's uh, it's taught me a world. Mm-hmm. And so I'm checking in with gratitude. And I'm in with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess that makes it my turn. Oof, your your check-ins brought up a lot in me. So let me get in touch with, I, I guess first is gratitude that let me just name that I've spoken to each of you only one time before we jumped on this podcast and I'm touched and grateful that you trust me enough to just share openly the way that you just shared and that it evoked a lot in me around my boundaries or around ways that I'm not showing up fully in my life around different things that I'm excited about. So I, I just wanted to name that before checking in with what feels true to me right now. And I, I've got, for people who can't see me, I've got my hand over my heart right now because there's there's just a lot that's happening in there. And one of, one of my goals is continually to have more and more access to uh, my beautiful heart and and stop living only in my head and to be able to just drop in and, and share what's here. So, yeah, what, uh, some other things that feel up for me right now, there's a little bit of sadness that a lot of the people that I interact with on a day-to-day basis, this connection that we are all experiencing right now is doesn't feel available to me. And so there's there's some sadness around like what is the level of connection that I have available in my life and am I in a career path that allows for that? And it's so important to me, but like, where, where am I going to get this? And there's also a little bit of sadness around, am I, I know that I'm the only person who's consistent in every interaction I have. So how am I not showing up fully? Am I, am I giving myself permission to show up? Am I blocking off connection? Am I armored up in a way that other people don't have connection with me? Is it, is it really just the other person? So there's some sadness there. There's the fear that I'm experiencing is around, I think there's two things. One is I'm actually doing an all Kings retreat next weekend and my dad will be joining me and I'm really scared around what's going to come up. Uh, Do I... My dad's an amazing person. I wouldn't be able to go on this retreat with him if I didn't have an incredible foundation of a relationship with him. But also, I didn't get everything I needed. So is it going to bring up some shit that I've never spoken to my dad about? And there's fear that's right here around this conversation of, man, we're talking about something that's really edgy for me. It matters a lot to me. matters a lot that I know that every single person that has committed a crime that they are imprisoned for is operating from some place of they didn't get what they needed when they were younger. They have a lot of pain. They have a lot of trauma. And if they were raised in a place of privilege like I was, they probably wouldn't be moving through the world in the way that they they have been. And it's edgy. A lot of the people that are in my life are going to be like, what the fuck? And like, this is a, this is a crazy topic for Mike to be talking about. And there's definitely some fear around like really standing in. This is something 
that matters to me and, and putting my stake in the ground. Like I know this to be true. And, and I think with that, I, I just felt something shift in me. There's, there's a little bit of excitement and, and lots of curiosity around all this really meaningful work that we can explore, all this amazing territory about the healing work that we can do and, and what's possible when we actually see each other. Like that is, in so many words, that's the mission of, of what this podcast is about and what my coaching practice is about. Can I really see other people? and drop all the stories and cultural narratives and things that they've done, but really see who someone is at their core that we're really not all that different in, in, in any way, really. So that's, that's all up for me right now. Thank you. Thank you for sharing, man. Hmm. So from here, people who have listened to at least one prior podcast of mine know that I, that I usually start the same way. So we're now we're going to backtrack and I, I checked in with you before we hit record and it seemed like a question that you're both interested in engaging with in some way. So I'm going to make this a, a two-parter. I, I do want to know what it was like at each of your dinner tables when you were growing up. And then from there, I would love to hear a little bit more about what you're up to in the world today. Uh, how it might connect to what it was like at your dinner table when you were growing up. Like, what did you get that you needed? What didn't you get that you needed? And and what is the work that you're doing today? And from there, we're going to have lots of fertile grounds to explore, play with, and and talk about some of the things that we've named with our check-in. So, I think let's let's start with Raúl here, and then we'll kick it to Ben. Great, thank you. I think there's a number of thoughts that come to mind when you ask me that question about what was it like at your dinner table? And the first thought that comes into mind, like what wasn't it? There was times where we had a lot of laughter as family. My father is a very charming man. He was a type that sometimes he would dance with my mother in the kitchen. And my sisters would sit at the table and we would all be there and probably be a little hyper eating a good family meal. My father was physically abusive, mostly emotionally abusive, mentally abusive. There was times where he was kicked out of the house. And so sometimes for a month or two or a week or a day, he just wasn't there because he was quote unquote working. I didn't understand as a kid the language around these, this type of thing, abuse, violence. I didn't get it. I just see what's occurring in front of me and just try to make the most sense of it. There was times where my two older sisters, who are my half-sisters, didn't want anything to do with it. So they're in their own little world and they're teenagers. So they, they're off kind of doing their own thing. And so there was this, this ebb and flow of like having extreme connectivity of like connection around love and and laughter and other times where there was this this silence from pain mm. and there wasn't much to be said but one of the thoughts that came into mind and i'm just going to go ahead and dive dive in deep here mm -hmm. the there was a moment where one time my dad came home and he hit my mom she was washing dishes and heard her scream from the other room and my sisters and I ran out of the room. We go into the kitchen. This was in the kitchen. And on one side, my dad is standing in against the wall, holding his arm because he was bleeding. 
Because when he came home, he hit her. She turned around. She stabbed him in the arm. On the other side, my mom was just standing there with a knife. My sisters ran behind her. One of them called the cops. And my mom was just saying, stay, stay back. And I was in the middle against our dinner table. And I over here on one side, I'm seeing my dad, who was still in my eyes, my hero. This person who was funny and playful and creative and strong and everything that kind of aspired to be at that time. And on this side, I see my family that I, I desired to protect and take care of. And I just stood there in the middle and watching it all go down. And I saw my dad get taken out in handcuffs that day. And that home reminds me a lot of constant chaos when I don't know what's going to happen next. And the what it planted was me to be fearful of when things are going great things are going great there must be something wrong here and i had this deep lack of trust with anything and anyone that can possibly make me unstable here so i just guarded up and then eventually it led me to doing transformational work much later i've been doing transformational work for 15 years now and is when i learn how to revisit some of these memories and be like oh i learned something here there was a, something got planted here and it created and curated so much of my relationships, so, so much of my life. And when I learned how to do that, I put some of that stuff down. And I made it my mission to, to support brothers and sisters doing the same thing out in the world where they take on this abrupt experience we call trauma because all it is is an abrupt experience that our mind can comprehend. So therefore it lives in the body and it lives without language uh, and this unknowing. But I, I, I I get a hint of it, something there. And I've dedicated my life to doing work with folks on how to put some of that down so we could create a new possibility of what we actually want to live. Uh, so that was my experiences around the dinner table. Thank you for sharing. And there's there's plenty we'll get back to, of course, but would love to hear now from Ben in the same way. What was it like at your dinner table and, and how in... in whatever way feels right to you, how has that informed the way that you look at the work that you're doing today? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for that share, Raul. You know, I, I I definitely have my complaints about the parenting, but I feel a lot of compassion for the violence that you, you know, you had to observe in your own family. Like that, that element wasn't present in mine, you know, so I feel a lot of compassion around that. You know, I was thinking about this question, you know, that I think the dinner table experience kind of evolved, you know, for me over time. We, I was born in Illinois. I live, I live in Massachusetts now. I was born in Illinois and, and we moved out here when I was eight. But I, I remember, you know, as a little kid in Illinois, you know, my father was uh, successful in financial services. He, he did very well for himself. But that was sort of a, a trajectory that happened over time, like particularly, I think, after we moved. So we had a much more kind of very... I would say very average kind of middle class, you know, home that we lived in in Illinois. And, you know, meals always would start with a prayer. Uh, my family was evangelical Christian, like pretty seriously so. So there was always a prayer, you know, to start the meal. And then like the memory that I have, you know, in Illinois was my father was really big on everybody had to finish all their food. You know, he called it the clean plate club. We had to be part of the clean plate club. If you didn't finish your food, there was consequences, you know, including, uh, you know, spankings or whatever, you know, he didn't mess around about it. And so, and I would sort of say this, like, and I, you know, if my father listens to this, you know, I, I, I want him to know I love him a lot. You know, we have a, we have a 
pretty good relationship today, which I'm really grateful for, you know, and like there were, there were ways that he was a real tyrant growing up. Like it was his way or the highway. And he was by far the biggest, strongest, you know, person in the room. And I think he had a lot of unprocessed anger, you know, that drove some of that. So it was kind of like, you know, there wasn't a lot of choice. It was like, this is how it's going to go down. And, you know, around like the having to eat the food, there was a, one of the memories I have is a little, a little like wicker basket. And he had a collection of National Geographic magazines. And one of those magazines had a picture of like a starving African kid on the front of the magazine. And he would pull that out and kind of put that in our face if we didn't want to eat the food and say, look at, you know, these people don't have anything to eat. You should be grateful. I had the bright idea that we should mail the food we didn't want to the people in Africa. I thought that made a lot of sense, but that uh, (laughs) wasn't well received. But, you know, but that kind of like there was just there was an intensity to it. And I think it's a different kind of intensity than what you know, Raul just shared, but it's just a very, very strong sense of like, I'm being compelled. Like there, I, I don't have, I don't really have agency. I don't really have choice here. And I think there was just a lot of that. Like when I think about like my childhood, like there was a program and we were on that program and it was all the components of it were pretty much mandatory. Like there wasn't a lot of like, Hey, what would you like to do today? Or, or, you know, I don't remember that anyway. You know, I'm sure there was some. We definitely had happy moments too. I don't want to. I don't want to paint a picture of of misery. Like there were plenty of fun times and games and big big Christmases and you know stuff like that. Like there was there was definitely good stuff too. But yeah, like it feels vulnerable actually talking about this, knowing that this is like a public forum. Like it's it's much more easy for me to kind of go into it in a private circle. You know, because I mostly think about like my parents listening to this. You know, and mm-hmm. I don't have any intention to be hurtful. You know, and I also want to tell the truth. So, yeah, I think there was just there was a sense of one of the things that was said to me in therapy was, Ben, I don't think anybody ever waited for you. And that hit home for me in a way where it was just like there was just like this kind of urgency and demand. And like, we're just going to move. We're going to we're going to go do this, whether you want to or not, whether you're ready or not. It's just this is happening. This is happening right now. That was kind of the energy, I think, particularly with my father. And the religious piece, there was a whole layer on top of that, you know, so there was a lot of, I'll speak about my, you know, Christianity is a big tent. There's a lot of different flavors of it. The flavor that I grew up with was, I think, pretty hardcore and had a, had a theology that I, I really consider today to be toxic to the soul, you know, which is this idea of, of like in Catholicism, it would be original sin. And I think that we would say like an evangelical world, like the sin nature, or just the idea that like, I'm basically a bad person, kind of like a piece of shit. To the point where, you know, God looking down on me is disgusted with me and I need to go to hell and burn for eternity for, you know, just just for really who I am. And the, and the bad things that I do are, are an expression of that kind of inherent flawedness or evilness in, in my nature, you know, which is really extreme. And I think it's I think it's a form of child abuse, you know, to say something like that to a kid. Because I really believe people are are love at our core, even like the quote unquote worst of us. Like, you know, if you go underneath the layers of trauma and, and baggage and whatever, there's a golden core at the bottom. But yeah, but just like that, that aspect of things I think was really damaging. And so there's a lot of kind of like keeping up appearances, you know? And so like, I think like, like growing up and kind of like white, you know, initially like middle class and then later on, like very kind of, you know, very privileged environment. There's a lot of like, you know, how are we? How are we being perceived? You know, com- competition. You know, it's not okay to like get good grades in school. You need to be the kid with the best grades, you know, or, or whatever that kind of stuff is. And just, just the pressure, I really felt like 
increasingly, and it got a lot worse when we moved to Massachusetts, there was so much pressure to like wear masks and to like to look a certain way, you know, to, 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 to fit into a certain mold. And like a church was especially painful. I really felt like my parents had, and especially I think my dad had a really, it was really important to him that we look good and that the children be well behaved. You know, I think maybe that was something he probably had to go through as a kid. I get the sense that his mom, you know, who's, who's uh, now deceased, I think she was pretty hard on on people. Um, he told me he had, they had to go to church every night of the week for stuff. And it was just, it was pretty, like, it was pretty intense, you know. So um, when I first did men's work with the Mankind Project, my carpet work was around the experience of going to church and being told on the way home to basically keep up, you know. My dad's phrase was keep the cards and letters coming, you know, like the the receiving the accolades from other people about like what nice kids you were. You know, I kind of felt like a, like a performing bear or something. It's just like, it's like I got missed, you know? And so it's, it's been, and I'll wrap it up here. We're getting way away from the dinner table, but you know, the sense of just like, like the pain of just being missed, I guess, you know, and they're not like the room for the authentic me not really being there. Like that's, that was really painful. And I think like the, the, the socioeconomic privilege was a, like a smokescreen or whatever, whereas it, it was sort of like, I was constantly being told, you have it very lucky. You should be so grateful. And on, on, on the socioeconomic level, they were right. They were very right about that. Like, mo- I think the story I make up is that most people would kill to have the uh, privilege that I grew up with. It was very, 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 very good. I don't, I, I don't take it for granted, you know, and there was an emotional poverty in that, you know, like I don't remember my father and mother dancing in the kitchen. You know, there was a, there was a real tension there. And I think like some 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 polarization, like I don't remember that, you know, I would have liked to see something like that. And then I guess how it relates to the work that I do, you know, like men's work really, and it's really it's human work. I just got into it in an in a organization that was, you know, focused for men. Um, so I'll, I'll rephrase that to human work, like, like that inner work saved my life, changed my life, you know, so I really believe in that. I want to make that available to other people. And then specifically like doing that work in prison with Jericho Circle, I got into it because I think I wanted to prove that I was a tough guy. I had a carry wound from my old man that I'm not tough enough, you know? So I wanted to go hang out with guys that I thought were pretty tough. But there was also a piece underneath that around redemption. And so there's something about like meeting people in prison and offering redemption to them that is a projection of my own need for redemption, you know? like And a lot of that is the, the religious stuff. There's just this very deep sense that I have that... that if you really know me, if you really get in there, I'm just a bad guy. And I know it's I know it's not true. The adult in me knows it's not true, but there's a little kid in there that just is really attached to that idea because that was the price buying into that was the price of belonging in my family. Mm. So, you know. And in my religion and you know, yeah. So anyway, that's a long answer to your question. And a, a beautiful one. So thank you for sharing. That's the reason that we block off two hours. It, there's there's something I want to underline about what you said, because I think it's really important to make note of it, is I, I wrote down on my piece of paper here, comparative suffering, that I think a lot of times, like I'm from a place of privilege as well. Uh, people would kill to be in in my shoes, to be raised by the loving family that I was raised by. And in my experience, there's a lot of, kind of bypassing that happens of like someone out there has had it way worse than I have. And so I'm not going to look inwards as a result of that, because I should be grateful for where I am, for what I have. 
And I, I wanted to make that distinction that there's absolutely space for both to be true. Like, I'm really grateful. I was raised in an amazing situation. And as a human, I don't know if I've ever met one who has gotten everything that they needed when they were younger. And we're all carrying some level of wound. And I, I think maybe the other thing that I would add here, because it's been really helpful for me to learn this, is that when we're five, we don't have the capability of saying there's someone out there who didn't get what I needed. You're When you're five, you have needs. And if they're not met, then it fucking hurts, you know? And and we're all carrying that five or six or whatever year old in us in, in some ways. And so we can choose to say someone out there had it way worse than me and I'm not going to look, but then we'd still be carrying that pain and that wound around with us. And I have to remind myself of that a lot because I, I mean, it, it actually feels really tender and vulnerable to say this, but I, in a lot of ways, had it a lot better than both of you. I mean, I was raised with parents who were very intentional about how they raised me, who, who didn't say you need to get straight A's to get my love and affection, who told me if I did my best, that that was, that was good enough, who at sometimes fought. And I, I have a little bit of a gnarly relationship with anger, but a lot of the times were very loving and would dance in the kitchen. And they're still, even in a perfect household, if that were a thing, which it wasn't for me, but even if that were a thing, there's just, as soon as I leave the household, there are all sorts of ways that I didn't feel accepted as a man. And, and for me, or maybe not as a man, but as a boy, and then as I became a man. And, you know, for me, some of those were around my uh, gentleness, my sensitivity, my uh, quietness. And I'm a multitude of many things, but those are, those are just a couple of the ways that when I left the household, I was like, I cannot show other guys that I am scared or that there's a tender part of me here or that I'm more reserved or that I, you know, I freeze when I walk up to women or, or whatever it might've been. So I, I, as I, as I say all this, I, I would love to hear in our, in our check-in, we all named at least a couple of emotions. And I, <laughs> at one point that felt really foreign to me. And I, I think that one of the beautiful things about doing any type of transformational work is it provides a basic literacy around like, here are some emotions that you're experiencing. Here's how you know they're present. So I would love to hear each of you talk a little bit about how you developed that literacy in yourself and, and how you help foster that literacy with other, whether it's men, women, or anyone at all. Like, how do you help people foster that type of, that knowing of what's going on inside? Yeah. Thank you for that, Michael. I think I'll kick off. I'll, I'll kick this one off. And <clears throat> just to add something to what was shared before, if I burn my hand and then I look at a photo that has their entire body burned, it doesn't make this any less real. It doesn't make this pain in my hand any less real. And I think perspective is a powerful tool to one, cultivating peace and coming back to center and seeing kind of the broader strokes on how this is applying in my life and kind of get the macro view, which is it could be an extremely powerful tool or it could be used to disregard. And I could disregard myself, my emotions and my feelings because of, I, it's kind of like imposter syndrome, but like I'm not allowed to suffer here because someone has suffered more or I'm not allowed to be joyful here because someone has more joy than me. And so it dilutes, it's, it becomes very comparative. 
narrative. And in the sense of checking in with the emotions, we have a saying, well, it's, it's not our saying, but we, we say it in our space that shame dies when shared in a safe space. Hmm. And everyone, there isn't a single person that's walking around on this planet absent of emotion. Everyone has joy, fear, sadness, shame, anger. It's universal. It, it happens, right? And and it's not something, I think there's this, there's this perspective that these, well, when we share this, when we say these, let's say five dominant emotions, people say, why is there only one good one or four bad ones? And there's this perspective that sadness is a bad thing or anger is a bad thing. A shame is a bad thing. If I'm, my fear supports me in crossing the street safely, keeps me mindful and cautious. My, my shame is my internal voice, my intuition that's telling me of what I want to be and what is an integrity, what's out of integrity. If I didn't have that moral compass, then I would just be creating more of the things that I don't want to see in my life. So it's my teacher. And so I think as men, more so often, and especially depends on what culture we, whether it's race or just in the environments that we grow up in, is that we've been taught to really disregard our emotional landscape. We've been taught the common man up, toughen up, boys don't cry, have to be tough, have to be strong. Even in healthy, quote unquote, healthy scenarios like sports, it's about conquer, defeat, win, shake it off, dust it off. And we have this conditioning that as men, we're supposed to desensitize ourselves or not be in our emotions because that's deemed as feminine. And feminine for men is somehow deemed as weak. And if I've been taught from three years old to ignore everything that is surfacing for me right now, how can I possibly sit in front of someone else and understand what's occurring for them if I don't even know what's going on for myself? And so the, what I find really powerful about the containers that we sit in and doing men's work or human work or reflection work, the majority of my work has been with both men and women, but in these last recent years been with men, has been to, if we can revisit those stories that have all this emotion and be met with compassion, love, and empathy and understanding, you might not know what it was like to see your father bleeding from your arm, but you know what it's like to feel fear and maybe not be protected in the moment you most needed it. That we share, that's empathy. And if we could share our stories and see each other for where we're at, what we were missing, then it's not so scary for me to ask myself, what did I need in that moment? What do I need now? What do I really need now? Now that I don't have to hide this or push this down, I could actually bring this thing up and let it teach me something right now. And so I think we do that by one, I mean, we personally do that in, in, in all kings by doing facilitation of many processes, but a lot of it is just me coming with my truth. And anytime you come with your truth, I learn something about myself. And anytime I come to, with my truth, there's a part of me that you might be able to see yourself in and you might get something out of it. And so the difference between talk therapy, which I'm all for, I'm all about, I applaud talk therapy, and that requires me knowing what I have to say and the language that that might be associated with. And in this space, we don't need that. We could just even witness each other and and learn and grow from there. So yeah, Ben, I, I 
I would love to hear, I mean, I, I know that it's pretty similar probably in your experience, but how have you, have you fostered the, the similar level of like understanding what's going on or just general responses to what Raul was sharing there about what it means to be seen, to, to speak to what you're feeling and, and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I thought Raul, Raul covered it very well. You know, all the emotions are our allies. They're not enemies. They're assets, not liabilities, like however you want to frame it, especially the quote unquote dark ones, you know, uh, our whole society tells us to stay away from that, but actually going through that, I, I view like in a, like if there's a, such a thing as a healthy state or an enlightened state or an embodied state or whatever, as I'm completely okay with myself in that place. And so when something arises, that's a trigger, I get knocked, I get knocked off center. There's like a disturbance in the force and the emotion that comes up is the thing that's going to lead me back home to myself. And so when I say I'm not allowed to have some of my emotions, what I'm really saying is, is I'm there are parts of me that I'm not allowed to have. You know, so if anger is about like boundaries, you know, and getting my needs met and I'm not allowed to get angry, then I'm basically saying I'm, I'm not allowed to have a boundary with somebody. I'm not allowed to have my needs met. I think that's a general message in our society. I think we give it particularly to women, you know, like, like guys are told, Big boys don't cry. There's a lot more permission to rage. So a lot of times when men are raging, they're actually sad under that, but they don't have permission to cry. And then the reverse is true for women. You know, the message is, you know, if you get angry, you know, you're being a bitch. Like, don't do not do that, right? And so uh, a boundary will be crossed or a woman's needs will be ignored and she'll start crying about it. But if you pay attention, the tears are angry, mm. you know, and and really she's pissed and she has a right to be. You know, and so so part of the process here is is in a safe container is re-socializing people, men and women, you know, uh, all of us, you know, to kind of go in and say, like, actually, all of these emotions are valid and welcome. And, you know, yeah, like like the way we do that part of it's the teaching. We teach people like the five primary colors of emotion and what they're what they're about. So that's really important. And the other piece is the container. So the group holding environment, like Raul talked about you know, bring up shame in a safe space. The safe space is critical. If I share my shame in an unsafe space, people may be coming at me with judgment. They may ignore it. It may deepen the wound, you know? So it's, it's really in a, in a, the, the container is the holding environment and that's built through agreements, you know, like confidentiality, you know, respect some, some language stuff. Like I'm going to talk in I statements rather than telling you guys what, what's, what your truth is. You know, avoiding advice, avoiding avoiding rescue. You know, if I start crying, don't hand me a tissue. Let me let me have my grief. If I need a tissue, I'll ask. If I want a hand on my shoulder, I'll ask. You know, that kind of thing. And the other piece is like leadership that models vulnerability. If you're not, if if, if I as a leader am not willing to open my heart or take a risk and say something, why would anybody else in the group think it's safe for them to do it? You know, so so building those containers and then we do rounds, you know, and, and I think I think this is probably true in all kings, too. Like we, we do rounds in Jericho Circle. So we start with a meditation. That's kind of a light ask. Just get in your body a little bit. Then we'll do a round of sharing emotionally, kind of like the check in round like we did at the beginning of this call. And we do a couple other rounds. We do a round on integrity, which is looking at like when I'm not living the way that I want to, you know, as a man, as a human being, exploring the hidden logic behind that. Why? How does it serve me to break my agreement that I either have with myself or with somebody else? Like, what's the story I'm carrying about me that makes it unsafe to live up to my ideals? So we do a round of that. There's some truth telling that happens there. 
we do a round called clearings where if I have a charge positive or negative with somebody else in the circle, I can explore what I'm projecting onto that person and to kind of reclaim that for myself so that I can, I can release that charge and be present. And all those rounds successively kind of like build and deepen the container. So when we get to what we call the work round, there's a, there's a holding environment that can handle things like childhood trauma, you know, the deep emotional pain that people are carrying. And in that space, we'll do psychodrama, you know, a lot. We might do some guided visualization or, or kind of inner parts work, sort of analogous to like internal family systems, that type of thing. And and psych, could you just say briefly what, what psychodrama is? Is that something along the lines of maybe, you know, playing out a scene in your life that, where you're, you're feeling some sort of charge or emotion about and in acting out or playing out that scene again with people standing in as as different parts. Yeah, I, I think you you get where, where I'm going with the question. So could you just say a little bit about what it is? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I think you explained it pretty well, Michael, but it's, <laughs> it's yeah, like like I can either pick, I, I use other people in the room as props to either role play important, important figures in scene in a scene in my childhood. So like I could pick somebody like, here's somebody to play me as the little kid at the dinner table. Here's somebody playing dad saying, you have to eat your food. If you don't eat your food, you're being selfish and you'll be punished, you know, something like that. Right. And I get to watch that, that play out and then feel the feelings that come up. And then there might also be an opportunity for me to re-engage with that scene as an adult. Like maybe I want to come in and step between my father and the little kid and protect him. Or maybe I want to turn to the kid and give him a hug and say, Hey man, you're good with me. Like, like I see you. And you don't have to take this on, you know, like you're okay. You don't have to eat all this food. Like if you're actually full, like that's fine. Like, you know, I trust you to actually trust your own body. Like you're, I see you, you matter here, you know, like what you want matters, that kind of, that kind of message, or maybe do some of both. And so there's a way you can kind of like through that process, engage energetically with the material and re-script the story that's being carried around inside. Hmm. So wh why does it feel, you've spoken to this at least a little bit, but right? You said, Ben, that there is a part of you who just wanted to prove you're a tough guy. So I, I hear that. But why does it feel so important to you to be doing this in prisons? Well, I mean, there's a lot of levels, but, you know, on a personal level, I think it's I think there's a um, like a redemption narrative, you know, that I'm pursuing for myself. And so I like if we were to look at like the kind of the shadow or unconscious part of me, it's like if there's forgiveness for somebody who's murdered somebody, maybe just maybe there's forgiveness for me, too, you know. And that might sound crazy to somebody who didn't grow up in my religion, but if you grew up the way that I did in my family, there's a very, very deep sense of like being bad, you know, and 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 wanting hope against all hope to find out that actually I'm okay or that I, I I'm a good person, you know. And so I think there's there's that piece, and then there's also like the justice piece of it, like just sort of like like reaching out to. I think there's a way that like maybe we're all. I kind of feel this like there's a way that I feel kind of incomplete when other people are out in the cold, you know? And so like, if you, if you look at the life stories of people in prison, the environments that they grew up in, it was, they were deeply traumatic environments. And like, you know, people will be quick to point out, well, not everybody who grows up in that environment, you know, kills somebody true, but very few people kill somebody who didn't grow up in an environment like that, you know? So there's, and there's, there's FBI research, there's NIH research, that links adverse childhood experiences. Like if you have a high on that survey of 10 questions, you know, if you have a high number on that, there's a, there's a greatly increased risk for violence in youths, you know, which is totally understandable. These are kids who's being ignored, being hurt, 
they're being disrespected, their self-esteem is in tatters, and they learn to defend themselves with rage. Like, of course, who wouldn't do that, you know? So this isn't about avoiding accountability. You know, this isn't saying like, you know, like, I don't believe we should decarcerate everybody tomorrow. I don't think that would be safe for society. If somebody's a, a violent person, that's the way they're showing up. They need to be quarantined so other people don't get hurt. But that should be done from a place of like love and compassion. How can we help you meet yourself and heal your wounds versus we're going to take all of society's shame that we don't want to feel and we're going to pile it on you and make you kind of like the social scapegoat, which is, I think, how it plays out a lot. I mean, and it's starting to shift, you know, I think I think our society's waking up to the fact that like we incarcerate an enormous number of people. It's disproportionately people of color. There's an incredible amount of injustice and in just the, in the way that the system is structured and that needs to change. I think people are waking up to that. You know, guys and guys in our prison in Massachusetts, you know, there's there's first degree life sentences, which means you don't have the possibility of parole. Second degree life sentences where you you can go before the parole board and potentially get out. And there are Supreme Court decisions that are coming down now for first degree lifers where they're saying, well, if you were convicted below a certain age, your brain hadn't fully developed at that point. And so this sentence is, is I think, probably cruel and it's unconstitutional in some way. Like this, this violates your rights as a person. You at least have the opportunity to go before the parole board. And so we're watching guys inside who never thought they were getting out. All of a sudden that age gets like raised a little bit more and they're included in the thing. And it's like, holy shit, I get to get out now. You know, and I think we're going to see like more legal changes like that. Um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good stuff that's happening. It's not fast enough and there's a lot of pain, but I do, I do believe we're moving in a better direction, but there's a lot of work to do, you know? So, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Would, I guess I'll, I'll kick it to Raul. Uh, and if, if Raul, you feel that Ben would, you know, be able to just keep rolling with this, then I'll, I'll leave that to you. But Ben started to speak a little bit to the systemic challenges that in some ways, I mean, in my understanding of systems, a lot of what happens in our society is is actually in some ways a predictable outcome of the way that our systems are set up. And so I'm wondering if you could just explain a little bit about like how is the system set up so that we have this massive challenge with incarceration where it's severely slanted more towards people who are of color, who come from probably poverty uh, or at least tough economic backgrounds, who have dealt with trauma when they were younger. Like, it, I would love to hear you just talk a little bit about the the systems and and how the deck is stacked against a lot of people who are eventually incarcerated. Yeah, there's there's so much to say about this this point. So I'm trying to wonder what what direction to take this to because the system itself is not just the judicial system. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's everything. It's the structure of it all. It's redlining and how we would consolidate low-income families in a certain area where public schools are being funded by tax dollars. So this neighborhood over here is a lower middle or upper class, middle class family. That's public dollars from their taxes are funding their, their local schools. Now you have this school over here that's a redline neighborhood where it's predominantly people of color and lower income families probably a higher level, uh, a lower level of education because, historic, because of history, because of slavery, because of how that's, you know, played its part in the ripple effect it has till now to mental health support, to the lack of resources, to the addiction or what's readily available in within these neighborhoods. So you have tax, tax dollars that are funneling these schools. 
this school is overpopulated. The one in the hood is overpopulated. There's a lot of students. There's lesser qualified teachers because there's less income and, and resources for that. There's less accessibility to after-school programs, arts programs, and diversifying in that sense. While this other school being funded by the same tax dollars by those inhabitants are a lot better funded, higher qualified teachers, higher salaries, more spaciousness in the class, more peer one-to-one support. I grew up where, when my, I was born in Texas, my mom and my sisters and I came to New York kind of to run away from my dad. And when we got here, my mom acquired the role of working two jobs overtime. There wasn't any after-school programs. There wasn't anything like that. She was physically less present because she was always busy working. And emotionally, she was also detached because she's angry and she's jaded. And she's All the life has just hit her in, in the most abrupt ways in, in my household. And so now all I'm left to really meet me where I'm at is what's available for me in these streets and what's around me. Now, thankfully, I have really loving, beautiful sisters. And thankfully, I got into resources like I'm a b-boy, I'm a breakdancer. I got involved in my community where my crew, where they would fight before, turned all that energy into battling. So it got converted into something else. But going back to these systems is that I think to a large part, we missed the point on all the things that lead us to have the experience that we have. And if I don't have guidance or support or bandwidth or my family doesn't have the support, then why do I really want to go to the school where they're teaching me something that feels so irrelevant to my reality? And so the the spiral effect on what we all learn to adapt and survive in, in our environment all play a role on how we act in the moment. Something just happened to me. And if I, if anyone has enough charge and energy and fear and anger right bottled up to the system they're going to do whatever they need to do to survive in that moment i've had a number of guys and again this i don't think this is this is tailored towards sad stories or things that are hard to hear but let's say the conditions of this environment and the system that i put in play uh i'm oppressed by that you know i myself have been stopped and frisked four times where i'm like put on the hood of a car hands on the hood, body checked. I've, I, and I've been a straight arrow for, for my life, you know, like uh, it, it was my own personal choice, not to deem it wrong, but it was my personal choice. I'd never been drunk before. I, I don't smoke. I don't do, I don't do drugs. And in a sense of, because I'm Latino going around a certain neighborhood, I must be up to no good. Mm-hmm. So I think we need to understand the, the world of people of color, Black people and and the experience of what it's like to walk out here. I'm I'm on the train station platform, my hands in my pocket, and I see a cop, and my mind goes to I'm a person of color. I've been I've been uh, my rights have been abused by this person by a person that looks like this. My hands look a little suspicious by being in my pockets. Maybe I should take them out. Oh, now I look suspicious because I took my hands out of my pocket. Let me put them back in. Let me get on my phone and pretend I'm not bothered by him. This thing is what's a constantly occurring, occurring in our in our world. And the more my environment teaches me to survive, uh, and with with tools and skills that don't complement what I'm actually looking to achieve in life, the so the higher the likelihood that I will make a decision that's out of integrity with myself. Mm. And so, when we look at a system, I think it's 
all of these things, plus so much more that doesn't get recognized on the obstacles that, that our brothers and sisters go through. And this, again, I'm speaking specifically to, you know, people of color being targeted and the the level of oppression that people of color have experienced in, in our communities. So I'll, I'll wrap up with this portion just because I'm giving you just a nugget of, of thought with this. But I'm going to expand on it more by saying one of our guys in our community would say not every prison has walls. Not every prison is just a box that you're sitting into where you're not allowed out. There's a prison in our mind, in our perspective, and how we deal with our shadows and all that burden, the emotional toll that it takes in our body and how it clouds how we operate. So regardless if you've been incarcerated or not or impacted by the justice system or not, we've all learned something to survive to get us here. Now, what we had to learn and how how uh, abrupt that lesson might have been plays a big role on what my next move is. Uh, so I think it's tough to ask ourselves a question and to really listen on what I don't know because I haven't lived it. Uh, and if we could sit down together with that, I think we could resolve so much of what's really occurring out here in the streets. I think that there's a maybe like stories around what feels possible. Like when, when you are, when you actually see someone who on paper, people would demonize and say, that's a terrible person. And like, if you were to share full story of someone that you were able to witness in, in their processing of whatever pain they have experienced in their life, like, I think that could be really powerful. And, and then maybe just speaking to like, Raul, I know you have a, a little bit of a menu of experiences that ways that people can access all Kings. And I know Ben, for you, it must be very similar with Jericho circle. And those are, those are the things that feel most alive for me. And you guys are awesome. And I just want to like, I want you to move in whatever way feels best for you guys. <laughs> I have a lot of stories that I could tell, but most of them I think are within the confidentiality of the container. So I don't want to tell somebody's specific story. I could say like speaking in, you know, more general terms, it would, it's not unusual to hear somebody tell a story like what Raul told, you know, where there's violence in the home, you know, a weapon being pulled, you know, I've heard people talk about where, you know, you know, they had to step in, you know, in some way and defend, you know, one parent against the other, like as a child, you know, but that was like where they felt they needed to go, which to me speaks about like the incredible warrior energy, like the courage you know, that I think many people in prison are kind of like 99th percentile on that kind of spectrum, like the willingness to confront, to stand up, to take, to take action. It obviously went like really wrong, you know, so I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over that or minimize the pain of victims or innocent people who got hurt along the way, you know, I don't want to minimize that in any way, you know, and there's a real, I think, a sense of like tenacity and courage and so that exists there, you know, but in terms of like the healing process, you know, I kind of look at the work as in these various traumas as a kid, the failure is in the caregiving environment. The failure isn't the kid, but kids pretty much always take it personally. If mom and dad treat me a certain way and it doesn't land well on me, I make up that there's something wrong with me. And I think that that's a defense mechanism because it, it allows me to, number one, kind of like preserve the narrative that I need that mom and dad are in my corner. You know, they're going to, you know, they're, they're looking out for my best interest. I can trust these people, you know, 
And then it also maybe gives me a sense of control. Like maybe if I try harder, I can get it right. And that doesn't have to happen again versus I'm just at the mercy of somebody who's larger and stronger than me, who I, I don't get to control and they get to control me, which is pretty scary, you know, but I'll take on a story. There's something wrong with me, you know, and, and I think one of the big themes in prison, and I think this is the theme behind a lot of violence. And I'd love to hear, you know, from you, Roel, if you, you agree with this. The person's ego and sense of self has been deeply damaged. There's been a very, very powerful message of, you know, you're worthless. You're a piece of shit. You're nobody. You know, you literally don't matter. We don't see you. You're not important. And and the only way to sort of protect against that is to demand, you know, respect from somebody, you know, to like basically say like, like I have to, like there's this enormous rage that comes up in defense of the healthy sense of self. And it morphs into this really destructive tendency where the person's carrying this huge wound. And so you just, all you have to do is have somebody even like look at you the wrong way, you know, and it's like, who do you think you're looking at? What the, you know, who the fuck are you talking to right now? Like that kind of energy. And if you get two people with that same wound, like it can escalate so quickly. So like little things will turn into something that's like really violent and I think a lot of that's what's going on. And so the healing is to help people see like, hey, like, because guys will check in in the circle all the time. They're triggered by something that happened, you know, either in the yard with another person or perhaps maybe with a correctional officer or somebody on the staff, whatever. They're triggered. And if, if we pull on the thread, they're, they, they feel disrespected, you know, and it's poking this deeper wound. There's something there where they're, they're, they're already carrying this wound. Like there's something really wrong with me. And so this this slight intentional or not intentional, whatever triggers this really deep thing and the person's ready to go to DEFCON 5 and like, you know, get really violent over it. And they catch themselves and like, well, what's going on here? I don't want to do that. I can get in a lot of trouble if I do that. So we help them kind of go down and find this is a wound. This person didn't act, whoever the trigger is, like this is just a, a, a tiny little thing, but they're poking this thing you're already carrying. And then we go back in time and find like, where did you really pick this up? And it's usually in the family of origin with a parent, you know, but it might be in the community. It might be, you know, whatever there's school experiences or whatever, something like that. And then, then we can get into the psychodrama, you know, or some kind of a healing process. A guided visualization works pretty well too. Raul mentioned archetypes. So sometimes we invite people to like come in from an archetypal place, you know, like what if you, what if you were to step into the energy of a good dad or a good mom right now, what would you bring into the situation to benefit, you know, you as a 10 year old or an eight year old or a three year old or whatever, you know, and that's really powerful because we all have those energies that live inside of us. So we're kind of helping people. There's like, it's almost like a little a little trick or a little tool that we can use to help people access energies that live inside of all of us. Like everybody has that good dad energy, that good mom energy. It's in every it's in every single one of us. Um, king, queen, lover, warrior, magician, any of those kinds of energies. We all have them. And in the circle with certain tools, we can help people access those energies so they can bring them consciously to, to benefit themselves. So I, I think there's, I want to just name something that, that comes up for me and then, and just, like I said, almost just want to get out of the way and let you guys keep going because yeah. it's amazing. But uh, I think one of the ways that this deep wounding is poked at over and over and over again, I, I was thinking you know, Raul and I both live in the New York City area. Raul lives in New York City. I live in Hoboken, which is right outside of New York City. And the there is there's so many interactions every day for, say, a person who is homeless 
where they are being, it's being reinforced over and over and over again, including by me, which is where some of the sadness really comes in that they're, they're not good enough. They're a piece of shit. They need to get away. They need to go to their corner. We need to lock them up. And the, just the amount of damage that that does on a human psyche to, to get that repeated over and over and over again by in New York city, it's probably thousands of people every single day who are passing someone who is homeless and are just deepening this story of you're not enough, you're a piece of shit. And I think that even in micro ways, someone like me who like, I really care. I want, I don't want to show up that way, but it's so embedded in my nervous system probably around just like the cultural narratives of that person's not enough and they need to get away that even the fear, whether or not they're conscious of it, if I am casting fear their way in some way, or like grab my wife or anything at all that is demonstrating this is not safe and I need to go into protection mode, that is also reinforcing some of that. So I, I, I bring this into the conversation just to say that I have an immense amount of compassion for people who are experiencing homelessness, who are incarcerated, that that story has probably been buried into their psyche for a very long time and, and probably for many generations at this point as well. Yeah, I kind of there's a part of me that wants to broaden this out to reflect that that's all of us in a sense. Yeah. Like right now, we, we've spoken about homeless, formerly incarcerated, you know, I've shared some of, you know, like my story or our stories about hardship. And the point is, I th- the reason why I love doing this work, and it's not exclusively for formerly incarcerated, we work with at-risk young guys, and regardless of your experience with the judicial system, regardless if you're a man, woman, or non-binary, or however you identify, we all have beliefs that God is here where we're at now. I have this I have this this mm. theory that everything that we have in our life right now, everything that's present is a reflection of a belief system where we think we're right. Lose, win, or draw, it doesn't doesn't matter. Just everything that we have in our occurring world comes from where I think I'm right about this thing. I'm right about the money that I have. I'm right, I'm being right about the relationships I'm at. I'm being right about my my self-worth and how it's reflected with my health and my physical appearance. I'm being right about all the things that are making up and curating my life, right? And there's some things there that are working and some things that are not, right? And so if I want to attract the things, I mean, this, this, this podcast is like the search for meaning. There's, I'm imagining if, if, if there's someone listening right now is because they're seeking what that is. And they're trying to see themselves. I'm trying to see myself in it as well. And so doing this work, there's I get to visit just as that that person that's homeless in the streets has been conditioned over and over again by the people that are walking by. What is the conditioning that I'm getting every day as I uphold this environment that I've created for myself, as I maintain these relationships that I've built? as in me maintaining, keeping shame at bay and not letting it overrun me. And I have to navigate it just enough so it doesn't really dominate my world. And sometimes I slip and I'm in that darkness and I'm trying to find myself out of it. So I need to attach myself to other meanings that support me in navigating that. I think none of us 
are absent of that obstacle, regardless of what we're going through. And now our circumstances could have it right in our face. And perspective is a luxury when you don't have demons just swarming over your eyes to blind and filter you in the way you see things, the way I see things. And so I think that the reason why I love doing this work is because I get to see one, all the parts that participate and play a role in me being who I am today. Now there's a responsibility that comes with that. And what I love to do this work is not just for you. It's not, it's, it's me doing my work. It's me doing this work so that something can shift in you and new possibility can open to. And selfishly, because I'm a warrior in this world doing this, this work that I want you now, both of us to tag team and go make it available for the next person. And that's how we could go and create this consciousness in our community, in our environment. Every single person plays a role and participates with what's going on within us and with, uh, and outside of us in our immediate home and all the people that we cross in the street. We are generating something in every single moment. And by doing this work in reflection, I could be more mindful about what I choose to do with that. So when I walk that by that homeless person, I could have intact this fear and that fear that shows up in anger, which makes me be feel cold and walk by them because I, I don't want to feel that sadness of not being able to support this person or that judgment of how they got there in the first place and what I would have done differently. It's easier to just be angry and walk past that person and be shut down. Or I could have this moment of empathy and compassion, even if I don't give them anything to say, sorry, brother, I don't have it. Or I don't have something to offer you today and still be kind in the process as well. So I think there's there's so much of what we could practice and learn to be within ourselves. And that's why I find myself in circle. That's why I find myself doing this work because it is, sometimes the only place that I could go and actually see myself and being asked in, in, with genuine love, how's that working? Mm -hmm. And I get to be, give a real honest answer. Is it working or is it not? I, I was going to say just something that I'm hearing throughout the conversation that I think it really matters to me. And I, I've seen in a lot of the most powerful spaces, there's a I, maybe a flatness of hierarchy or there, there isn't like a I'm better and I'm here because I have this amount of money, this level of status and you're down there. There is a, a recognition that we're, we're all kind of cut from the same cloth and that uh, even if you are ostensibly the person who's running the circle and the leader, that actually the way that the most effective way in, in this example to really be the leader is to show up with your own stuff and just, and say what's really true for you. And to that end, I think that a lot of people in this line of work, or maybe especially this will be true for people who aren't in this line of work. There's an expectation that if you're the facilitator or a coach or a leader, that you are the person who's like got their shit figured out and you're then teaching other people. And one of the best benefits that I've gotten out of coaching is selfishly that when a client heroically shows up fully as them, I feel more permission to be fully me. And I learn a lot from my clients. And I imagine that is true when you guys are running circles, you are learning so much from just being in the space with other people who are showing up fully. And I would just love to hear both of you speak to that in, in whatever way experientially feels uh, right to you that 
you just learn so much from being around other people who are showing up. I think one of the things that you said that I kind of keyed into was, you know, we're all in this together and something about like not being, you know, one up or whatever with respect to another person. And, you know, in my defense, like when I get scared, one up is where I go. You know, it's like, I'm, I, I understand this, but I'm, I'm, I'm a leader. I'm here to lead today. You know, let me just lead and facilitate what's going on. Right. When I really check in around that, it's because I'm scared shitless to really connect on a deeper level with the people in the group. You know, one of my mentors who is a, himself was actually a formerly incarcerated guy said the safest place to hide is in the front of the room. So I think that there's a, like, a, I'll say for myself, I don't know if you resonate with this role or not, but like for me as a leader, I have to constantly like, and I do constantly catch myself being like, I'm, I'm putting a good show on right now, but I'm hiding, you know, can I, can I be a little more open like that kind of, you know, that's, that's, a, that's always a challenge for me, you know, and I, and I agree with you, Michael, like, you know, when I work with people, the the person who I'm facilitating they are my teacher, you know, and I watch them go somewhere, you know, where maybe sometimes it's a place that I've been, you know, and I know that place really well. And sometimes they go somewhere and I'm like, yeah, you know, I hope to have the courage to go there someday, you know? So I, I, I see both of those things. So there, there is, I think there is a way like, yeah, I mean, another, another reason I go into prison is I go into prison to learn, you know, and like to get something from the guys inside, you know, like there's like that part of me that wanted to be, see if I can hang with tough guys. Like these are guys like the adversity that these people have to put up with every day would, I think would, I make up the story. It would crush me. It would crush most people. I don't know. You know, it's very, very, it's just like day in, day out, you know, the living conditions are not glamorous, you know, the food is not delicious, you know, whatever, like, and just kind of what you would expect, right? Like it's, it's prison, the, 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 the other people that you have no choice, but to live with are also like you're as an inmate, very traumatized and all the people that you're living with are very traumatized. Like that's why they're there. So you got a, a person has to learn, like, how do you, how do I navigate this situation? I, I, I think it's very challenging. So I have a lot of respect for like the self-awareness that I see and the, the ability to, to kind of like catch oneself in a trigger, guys would be like, I'm starting to get angry and I need to stop now. Because when that when that part of me comes online, bad things happen. The self-aware, like the self-regulation that's been developed in a crucible is like really, it's very impressive, you know, and there's an honesty. There's an honesty in prison that like I aspire to, you know, I learned how to be a smooth talker. Yeah. Can I learn to be a little more honest? So, Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. There's there's something that occurs for me that has happened pretty often. Again, I've been doing transformational work for 15 years. And so as a co- consultant, as a coach, as you know, I've worked in, in a couple of different platforms, there's this expectation that this knowingness should be, it signifies a problemless or a sorrowless life, you know, where I'm not in turmoil that, that, I just should know this stuff. And therefore there's an expectation for perfection or performance for it to look a specific way because I'm knowledgeable in in something. And it reminds me of the saying that says knowledge is just theory until it's felt in the bones. And this information is just a nice concept, but the breakthrough doesn't happen with me acquiring this information. It's practicing it, it showing up in my life and creating a paradigm shift. Now, when I do that, 
I'm stepping into a new version of myself. And as I evolve that new version of myself, as I'm exercising that, that self of being integrity now for me might mean something different and it might look like something different. And so I'm constantly at the bottom of it. I'm what's that, that saying that I'm at the, at the top of every step. I'm at the bottom of the next one. Mm. And it's like, as I learn and adopt what I need right now in order to get me here, now that I'm more stable coming from this place, what's real for me now? And that answer is constantly evolving. That's constantly like there's there's seasons of seeking, there's seasons of practicing, there's seasons of learning, there's seasons of unlearning. And it's constantly unfolding and flowing based on where I'm at now because I'm stepping into a new version of myself. And that means I need to be willing to be wrong. Hmm. Because if I'm right about everything that I know, I will have more of what I already have. And if I'm in the process of progress, then I need to be willing to sit with what I don't know or what I don't understand yet so that that could become available to me. So being messy, being wrong, not knowing is a fundamental part of my transformation. And in order to be that, I really get to be vulnerable. And so, and, and don't get me wrong, this can this is a task. This is difficult for me as well, especially as the executive director of All Kings. I feel sometimes, yeah, I could come with my emotions, but my team will go as far as I go. So I need to get my shit together. I can't be too caught up in sadness. I can't, I can't, I need to model what it's like to look transformed. And I know that that's just my bullshit, my ego, because and my, my team is also masterful at reminding me that when I do a piece of work, I am held with so much love and admiration for me going there and that we could do this process together and learn and unfold. And take this, take in mind in our society, what does it mean to be a man? What really does it mean? There's previous definitions that was would reference more so patriarchal masculinity. But that me that meaning of being a man is so subjective to what this moment is and what it entails and what does integrity look like and what do I want to cultivate and responding from there. And there is no textbook of it. And in fact, we have a little bit of a late start because all we've been doing for so long is ignoring these questions. And so I love to be able to sit in the place and not know what the hell to do next because I'm, I'm figuring it out. And if, if I could sit with brothers and sisters that have enough courage to be in that same inquiry, sky's the limit. So this is a big question, and I, I do want to be mindful of time because we've only got about 20 minutes left here. But how do each of you look at what it, what it means to be a man right now? I mean, there's a, I think rightfully so to some extent, to a large extent, like men are getting a lot of crap right now because there's a lot of men in power who have done a lot of damage who are doing a lot of damage and so we're i think as a as a gender we're all coming to like what is it what do we get to let go of what do we need to step into and so with, from that lens like what does it right now look like to you each of you to be a man what does it look like for you 
it's a, I mean, it's a great question. Like I definitely grew up with a lot of programming around what it means to be a man, you know, and one of those programs was to not be vulnerable. So I'm in a continuing journey of like learning to take a little more armor off and be a little more vulnerable. And, you know, I teach people that I work with and I, I tell myself, you know, that's an act of courage. So, you know, if, if being strong is part of manhood, you know, not exclusively, you know, it's also part of womanhood or personhood. That's the, that's being strong enough to say, I'm, I'm willing to, to take the armor off, you know, so that I think that's part of it. I think there's a sense around like, I like to look at like masculinity and femininity as two sort of like poles of, of human being when they exist, maybe in different ratios and different humans, you know, but we all have both sides in terms of the masculine side. Like, I think there's really something about like, there's like a real sense of challenge to it. Like, like how much can I be with? And it's not from a place of you, I can go at it from a place of woundedness. Like I'm not good enough if I don't do this. You know, I often find myself in that because of some of my programming, you know, um, but there's also just a sense of like, kind of like challenge from a healthy place. Like I want to realize the fullness of me and like, how much can I be with, without getting triggered, without running, without collapsing, without going into bullshit? Like, can I stand? And I think a lot of it really in the inner world is, can I stand in the presence of this level of emotion and experience it without running from it? Do I need to go distract myself like i talked earlier like oh i better check my email because i feel the fear of a little more vulnerability in the one-on-one context here you know can i just sit with that and be like oh i'm scared right now and i feel that if i have a difficult conversation with someone like i did earlier today can i sit with the shame that i feel the anger that i feel the fear that i feel and not leave like can i be with that can i inhabit my body you know can Mm -hmm. i like breathe all the way down into my body i don't know about you guys but I was taught to kind of live from the neck up in my big old, and I do have a genuinely big noggin, like, like (laughs) large head, you know, my brain has been my safe place. My thinking mind has been my safe space to the point where when I finally started like coming into my body, it was like a holy shit moment where I didn't really realize that there was like a way that like my sense of me could expand. Like I've always had sensation below the neck. Like you could poke my hand and I would feel it but it was always down there. And now there's a sense of like, I'm in here and I'm bigger and I'm in my body more. And I can feel the edge of that, like the fear and the places that I contract. And I think the practice is like, can I expand into even more of this and be with it? And it's not just with the pain. It's also with the pleasure. Mm -hmm. Like, like if something feels really good, can I allow myself to fully experience that without running or having going into some story or or whatever, you know? So there's really a practice, I think, of consciousness. And I think there's a practice of this, again, for the masculine pole, which is available to everybody, you know, like purpose or mission, like some sort of sense of like providing direction to the world. Like, what am I from this place of being and groundedness and awareness? What am I, how am I going to engage the world? Like what, like, cause I have choice. I have, I have agency here. What am I trying to realize in this world? You know? And so I think there's a sense of around that too. So like whatever else it means to be a man is kind of like something that I think is like the definition of what a man is, I think is shifting. So I'll say, what does it mean to be like a mature masculine, to be in the mature masculine? I think it, it at least involves presence and it involves, and it involves a clear sense of mission and kind of like commitment to that. There's probably a lot more I could say, a lot more that could be said, but those two things, you know. 
Is there anything, Raul, that you would like to share about this? Yeah, to be honest, I don't. I have, I have things to share, but I don't have necessarily a clean answer about it. And I think, I believe that it doesn't exist to what it is to be a man. I think to zoom out, it's like, what does it mean to just be a conscious being, mm. a human being? And what is it? an integrity with myself and also the environment around me because part of my masculinity that has supported me so much is tapping into my femininity and i by having the courage to that i've actually feel more conscious being let alone a man by having the courage to be able to do that it's like having having the willingness to go excavate those those parts of myself and the feminine in society is usually deemed this inc more inclusive. Like the masculine is a little bit more linear uh, as, as his reference. It's like destroy, create, move forward, progress, growth, future, past. And the, the feminine has been deemed to be more horizontal, which is inclusive, inclusive, empathetic, considerate, and, and nurturing in that sense, where of course it, it involves, you know, nature involves progress as well, but there's this, there's this mindfulness of, of all that. And so I think doing this work, what does it mean for, for me to be in integrity about where I'm at? And sometimes based on where the journey is at, what means to be in integrity is just getting a meal in my stomach soon. Mm. And sometimes when I have the spaciousness is making sure that myself and my family are held well. And then if I have the spaciousness from there is the surroundings and the people that I've come across. And this thing and, and if I have the spaciousness from there, it's perspective and purpose and how I exercise that today and tomorrow and what my game plan is on how, what that looks like. So I really think it's subjective to each person. But for me, where it's at, aside from being aspiring to be the man that I want to be, to be the conscious being that I want to be, and that I think that's meaning well, being well and doing good. And what I mean by that is, mean well is, am I willing to be in an inclusive, is, it can, am I willing to be in a space where my integrity is inclusive, where it's not just me, but the all of me, all the things that I'm around. So meaning well, being well is exercising that and practicing modeling that myself. And that's probably my greatest obstacle, because I have to combat myself in that space. And then doing good is as I achieve and make progress on this to give it away. And so that's for me what it is to be my version of a man. Feels like a, a really good place to, and unless you guys have other other things that you would like to bring into the conversation, feels like a, a pretty good place to just start one, it. Michael, yeah. if I can. I just want to speak on the topic of masculinity because I think what you brought up is that masculinity is under fire you know, in our culture yeah. today. I mean, the phrase that I, I sort of hear is almost being synonymous with it is toxic masculinity. And 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 to the untrained eye, it kind of lands as, as masculinity is toxic. And so I really want to say that like, and I completely agree with you, Raul, like, like getting in touch with my feminine side is an essential part of my journey to being a whole and conscious being, you know, it's not either or, it's both and. I just want to say to to everybody, you know, and, and to myself, that masculinity isn't toxic. Wounded masculinity is toxic. So is wounded femininity. 
you know? And so that the quest here is like, how, how can I understand like what healthy masculinity looks like? Because there is a place where, you know, that linearness, you know, like the ability to draw a line in the sand and say this, not that is needed, but it needs to come from a conscious place. It needs to come from a, from a heart of love. You know, if it comes from a wounded place where I'm drawing a line in the sand, cause I'm too scared to deal with what's going on. That's not a helpful line, but if from a place of deep groundedness and love, I say, I have to like draw this line here to protect and serve, you know, the people that, that I I'm responsible for or to, to, to you know, to what were the, the three kind of wells that you said, you know, Raul, if I need to draw a line in the sand in order to do that, I need to be able to have that energy and that capacity. And so the, the invitation here for uh, men or for anybody who's identifying with their masculine side is to, is to become mature in your masculine, become conscious in your masculine, develop it. It's when you don't do that, that's when it's toxic. Mm -hmm. So being a man is a, a good thing, you know, as long as you're doing that in a mature way. And to bring it full circle, I mean, one of the things, if I connect a couple of dots that that we've had or through lines in the conversation, one way this might manifest is if you have a healthy relationship with your anger, then you're at a place where you can draw, you notice the anger, you're going, hmm, like, what is this anger communicating to me? Might be time to draw a clean boundary or, or something like that. And that's uh, maybe a conscious line in the sand that you're able to process, metabolize your anger see what boundary or need of yours is maybe being infringed upon and say like, I see what's happening here and I, I'm not okay with this. So I think that you guys are doing really incredible work and I, I want to invite people to connect with you in, in any way that you feel compelled to share. So and Raul, if there's any other place besides all Kings that you would invite people and, and Ben with, uh, with Jericho Circle, are there other places that you would want people to check out some of the work that you're doing or connect with you? Yeah, I would say All Kings is probably the main one. I, I've been a hobbyist and I'm a impact storyteller. I was a photographer, filmmaker. I went traveling around the world working with a lot of oppressed communities for a while. But All Kings is it's in this conversation where it's at for, for us. That's allkings.org. And again, it's, it's a space for all men to come and land, regardless of involvement with the judicial system. It's a place to come and unpack and do some reflect and be held in brotherhood. Uh, and and then to learn to pass it forward. So allkings.org. Mm -hmm. yeah, thanks. And Jericho Circle is the name of our nonprofit here in Boston. So we're kind of Boston-centric and New England-centric. Uh, right now, we're, we're in two facilities in Massachusetts, a medium security men's prison and then a women's prison. And then we also have a, a program up at the Maine State Prison in Maine, we're working to expand and grow, you know, our, our programming, you know, we would like to get to all the prisons in New England, you know, where our work is a fit. So probably most of the medium, maybe maximum security prisons. And then we're also slowly building out a reentry program so we can work with guys when they come home and help them make that really important kind of final transition back into society. And we're still sorting out, you know, kind of full disclosure, all of what that's going to look like, because there's a lot of logistical pieces that are, that are need to be solved there that aren't, that's not true in prison. Like you have you have housing in prison, you have food, you have, uh, you have a job. It may not be the ones that you want, but you have something, you know, so there's more of a luxury to go to a group and do inner healing work. When a, when a person gets out, it can be a real scramble. You know, it can be a really, really difficult situation. So we're sorting out how to do that, but we're running a couple of circles right now for, for people that have come home and we're looking to expand that as well. So, 
you know, we are definitely looking for some new volunteers. People can go to jerichocircle.org is our website. And there's a link to apply as a volunteer on there. If anybody would like to donate, and I'm sure this is true for the All Kings website too, we would welcome your donations. A little goes a long way with us. And there's a link on there for that as well. So, um, but yeah, you can, there's a phone number, email on there. You can reach out to us. Just go to the website. You'll get to learn more about the program. And if you want to connect from there, we'd love to hear from you. So thank you. Awesome. And I'll I'll make sure that I bring All Kings and Jericho Circle into the audience's awareness in the introduction. And I'll make sure it's linked in the show notes, of course. And I usually, at the end of the interview, ask what it means to you to live a meaningful life. And I I think we've dotted our I's and crossed our T's in, in that regard. And so I don't know if we really need to go there. I think that you guys have explained pretty thoroughly what it means to you to live a meaningful life and what it means to be in integrity with who you are. And I'm, I'm just right now in uh, gratitude that we had this conversation. It feels like it was almost a, a flavor of the work that you're doing when you are circling up, that this was just like an intimate exploration of who we are, what we're brushing up against, like what challenges we're facing, and uh, just a really sincere dropping in with, this is what it's like to be Mike, this is what it's like to be Ben, this is what it's like to be Raul right now. And this was a, a beautiful stamp in time for me. And I'm, I'm already looking forward to when, when this is ultimately released in August, that I'm going to be able to relive this timestamp in, in some way. So I think that everyone's getting a really great flavor for the people that you are and the work that you're doing. And I'm, I'm touched that we were able to have this conversation together. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. It, it makes a world of a difference to have a space to be able to talk about these things that are so not easy to find sometimes out there. So thank you for providing the space for us to come and reflect. Mm. Thank you both. It's great to connect with you and talk about this stuff. Really appreciate the opportunity to come on here today. So thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for trusting me to, to hop on. And for everyone who's listening, I, I hope that you have a good rest of your day or evening and uh, sending you lots of love. Take good care. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose.